Hello, this is Michael Taylor, and it struck me that some of you might like to have an audio version of the um, Weekly Shocks and Surprises Global Summary. Uh, this is the first time I've done it, so uh, it may be a little bit ropey, but I hope that it's useful. Um, okay, let's go. What I'm going to do is, I'm first I'm going to talk about the week's data, and then uh, I'm just going to go through something that I think is quite interesting um, in, in, in longer term things, uh, you're familiar with this uh, with this pattern, I'm sure from from the uh, from from the written things. Anyway, let's go. Uh, the week's data. Um, well, it was 24% surprises, 35% shocks. This is the fourth week in a row when the data was extremely volatile, um, and the end result is negative. The volatility in the data, which means that we're getting just way more shocks and surprises than I've ever seen. Um, the volatility has two sources. First, of course, all the signals from trade, industry, retail sales, demand data uh, is overwhelmingly negative, and uh, people are finding it very difficult to capture just or anticipate just how negative uh, things are getting. And uh, but secondly, there's also we're getting a raft of pricing signals which are currently being dominated by the fall in oil prices, which is leading to a whole series of disinflationary surprises. If uh, I count disinflationary uh, tendencies as still as being a positive surprise, uh, if you counted it as a, as a shock, then the results would be lopsidedly negative. Even so, the global six-week signal continues to fall and has only twice been more negative um, since I've been tracking it than it is at the moment, and I expect it will continue to fall. Looking at the regions... Uh, the U.S. generated 13% surprises, 26% shocks. This is the sixth non-positive week uh, in the last seven. Six-week signal remains uh, under solidly negative pressure, albeit not quite as bad as, as Europe and significantly milder than Asia. Um, the positive surprises uh, included a milder-than-expected contraction in April's ISM Manufacturing Index, and an unexpected 0.9% rise in March's construction spending. Uh, the no more numerous shocks were found in the deterioration in March's goods trade balance, where the deficit widened 4.3 billion to 64.2 billion, with exports down 6.7% on the month and imports down 2.4%. Uh, secondly, there was uh, the continuing collapse of the April's regional manufacturing surveys. Uh, this week, the Fed's uh, Richmond Fed's index dropped on uh, a record 55 points to a record low of minus 53. And, of course, we still got the continuing surge in unemployment. Uh, continuing unemployment insurance claims rose a further 2.17 million on the week to a record high of just under 18 million. Nevertheless, despite all that, for me, the most interesting data of the week came on Friday with the personal income and spending results for March. Uh, the headlines were not surprising. Uh, personal income fell 2.4%, fell 2%, uh, personal spending fell 7.5%, and that was within the range of uh, that, that was sort of expected. Nevertheless, what that means is that the personal savings rate rose from 8% of disposable income in February to 13.1% in March, with savings up 59% in dollar terms year on year. Now, 
given the degree of economic stress the U.S. household sector is under, it's surprising that they could make such a surge in savings at all. Less surprising, and potentially a major structural surprise if it's sustained, is the resurgence of economic and financial caution from the household sector, which is unparalleled even from what we saw in 2008-2009. Now remember, my disaggregation of U.S. profits using the sort of Kalecki uh, schema of things found that approximately 58% of U.S. corporate profits last year had their foundations in household dissaving. So if anything like the caution which emerged in March's data is sustained in the medium term, the impact on U.S. corporate profits will be potentially dramatic and dramatically negative. So um, there's a warning there. We need to watch that data. On over to Asia, uh, the data was again net negative, the six week in a row, 13% surprises, 30% shocks. Uh, six week signal is very sharply negative and I see no reason not to expect that to continue for the immediate future. Nevertheless, although there was loads and loads of bad news, um, the one thing I want to point out to you, um, because to me it was one of the sort of big sort of surprises of the week, it was a completely unexpected surge uh, in March's wholesale in Japan's um, March wholesale sales. These are up 26% year on year, and the monthly rise, March to February or February to March, was absolutely unprecedented in terms of seasonal trends. Looking at it a little, little bit more closely, what generated this bump was a 55% jump in machinery and equipment sales. And if you look at industrial machinery, sales almost doubled. It was actually up 98.9% year on year. Now, I don't know what's driving these sales. If you're an optimist, you'll say, well, look, the Japanese government has earmarked 240 billion yen for subsidies for companies wanting to relocate production out of China, and maybe that's kicking in to, at the year end, very tax efficient, etc., etc. A pessimist would say, okay, actually what's happening is Japan's capital goods makers uh, can't sell their products and they're just stuffing distribution channels. Um, I, I'm not sure what's going on there, but I did uh, feel that it was uh, so way out and so unexpected that uh, it was worth thinking about, and we will be following uh, that in the coming months uh, pretty closely. Um, over to Europe. Um, actually, the main thing about Europe wasn't that it was a, a negative week, although it was. It's just the absolute extraordinary volatility that we're seeing here. Uh, no less than 90% of the week's data fell more than a standard deviation outside consensus or trend. It's this data opacity, this absolute failure of our industry to be able to actually see what's happening in Europe, or I suspect possibly even envisage what's happening in Europe, uh, that, 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 that's really the key uh, message, I think. Um, one of the problems is, frankly, that with a lot of Europe in lockdown, um, Statistics agencies are finding it difficult actually to complete the surveys at all. This is particularly problematic in Italy, which abandoned attempts to survey consumers and uh, uh, industrial uh, confidence and didn't contribute to 
uh, April's Pan-Asia growth tracking indexes and, and confidence indicators. What results we did get from Italy were kind of weird. Um, for example, uh, Italy reported a 4.7% contraction in 1Q GDP, which is actually milder than expected and um, milder than what happened in France and Spain. Um, you know, yes, I stat the... Uh, Italian Statistics Agency did warn that, look, we've modelled this rather than surveyed it, and you should expect uh, revisions. But, well, yeah, you should. Um, but perhaps even more spectacular was uh, Italy's claim that March's unemployment rate had fallen um, 0.9 percentage points to a low of 8.4%. Now, you know, all the economic data I give... Um, I, 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 I have a suspension of disbelief, but this was uh, a suspension too far for me. Right, now I want to turn to the thing that's really been obsessing me this week. Uh, and I've written a small essay called uh, Wrong Answer, Wrong Question uh, about this. And it forms the uh, bottom part of the email. Um, and I'm going to read it. Um, and I hope that you find it interesting. The point is that the COVID lockdowns have engineered the most startling rupture in global demand we've seen outside wartime. And when you think about it, the proper tool for dealing with a dramatic demand shortfall is fiscal policy. But in the first instance, the timidity of governments around the world, and just normal practice, I guess, has meant that monetary policy has taken front and centre stage. Monetary policy is not suited to the task, it's failing in the short term, and threatens to entrench failure in the long term. It's the wrong answer to the wrong question. And this week, we have the opportunity to see how and why it's the wrong answer to the wrong question, uh, as we begin to be able to track what the dramatic expansion of credit that we saw in March and are seeing in April is actually doing. And when we look at it and examine it, and we can do this in the US, in the EU, and in Britain, a clear pattern emerges. When central banks turned on the credit taps, commercial banks allocated that money almost entirely to corporate and financial sectors, whilst actually withdrawing credit from the household sector. Monetary policy therefore didn't address the demand problem, it actually is worsening it. And this comes through in the numbers consistently, and I'm just going to walk you through the numbers because although it's kind of dull, it's also important. Take the US first, where we've got a detailed picture uh, available for March and the first two weeks of April. And it shows a very sharp rise in bank credit in March and in the first two weeks of April, but in the wrong places. During March, bank credit uh, rose by $486 billion, followed by a further $315 billion in the first two weeks of April. Most of that was new bank lending. And overwhelmingly, that new bank lending went to the corporate sector. Commercial and industrial loans were up $227 billion in March and a further $311 billion in the first two weeks of April. On top of that, commercial real estate got another $16.7 billion in March, $17 billion in April. 
loans to non-deposit-taking financial companies, i.e. the kind of the non-monetary financial sector, also rose rapidly, up uh, basically 57 billion in March and another 30 billion in the first two weeks of April. Flick over to the household sector, a different story. Consumer loans were up two and a half billion in March, which is unusually low, uh, but actually contracted by 52 billion in April. And on top of that, residential mortgage lending actually contracted also 0.3 billion in the first couple of weeks in April. In other words, bank, the money that the Fed has been creating has not stopped credit being withdrawn from the household sector at exactly the time where the demand problem would suggest it needs to go. Same story in the Eurozone. March's data shows overall credit creation up 272 billion euros, which is up from 50 billion in February. And of that 272, um, 137 billion went to the private sector. Looking more closely at bank loans, turns out that 115 billion went to corporates, 48 billion went to non-monetary financial corporations, and 11 billion went to insurance and pension funds. Credit to the household sector actually fell by 11 billion in March. Same thing in the UK. M4, which is our broadest monetary aggregate, rose by 57.4 billion, fired by 55 billion in new credit. Great. Corporates got the lion's share at 30 billion. Non-intermediate financial companies got 23 billion. And the household sector got just 1.7 billion, which is actually sharply down from the 3.9 billion averaged over the last six months. But it's hard to see, frankly, where even that 1.7 billion came from. For example, we know that mortgage approvals were down nearly 24% by number and 23% in the amount of capital lent. Remortgaging values fell by just under 20%. And in addition to that, there was a net withdrawal of 3.8 billion of consumer credit. So what's happening is that monetary policy in the Eurozone and the UK and the US is effectively protecting companies, non-monetary financial institutions, from the collapse in demand caused by the lockdown, but have actually aggravated and intensified the, that collapse in household finances and hence final demand. In these economies, the immediate problems generated by COVID lockdowns were problems of a sudden gap down in demand. The short-term monetary policy response has been to tighten household financial conditions while using all available, newly available financial resources to shore up the supply-side vulnerabilities. There are two ironies, or I think mistakes, in this. First, what makes it even more perverse is that particularly in the US and the UK, for decades now, as I've previously shown in our Times Where It Went Wrong essay, Corporate profits have been sourced primarily by a combination of household and government dissaving, whilst corporate investment has languished. So one would expect the legacy of these decades, then, to be financially vulnerable households suddenly struggling to weather the storm, while corporates should be looking back at these accumulated profits that have not been invested and their coffers should be flush. Of course, that hasn't happened because so much of the profits have gone back to corporate buybacks. The second irony, therefore, 
is that since corporates have learned to demand an absolutely compelling reason to invest in plant and equipment rather than just boosting their share price, this increase of lending to the corporate sector is most unlikely to result in investment spending. And it isn't. So, for example, in the first Q, first quarter, US GDP fell an annualized 4.8%, with consumption dropping 7.6%, but private non-residential investment fell even faster by 8.6%. Almost certainly, the same thing's happening in the Eurozone. Eurozone first quarter, GDP down 3.8%. And we've not got any um, detailed split yet for how that was calculated. But we know that in France, where GDP fell 5.8%, capital formation was down 11.8%. We know that it's Spain's fell 5.2%. Fixed asset investment debt was down 7.1%. So it's failing in both ways. But there are also longer-term implications to think about. The long run of rising profits and fading capital stock growth should have left corporate coffers sufficiently flush to allow them to ride out this abrupt drop in demand. More, those companies which retained their uninvested earnings rather than spending them on buybacks would now be in a position to prosper by taking over those companies whose management made no such provision. In other words, out of this immense economic destruction, some useful reallocation of assets and management might have been achieved, which would have improved economic and commercial resilience in the US, UK and Eurozone. Instead, those same managements and that same financial strategy is now being bailed out by monetary policy, even as its fatal frailty has become impossible to ignore. The opportunity to wrest something creator out of this terrible destruction is being squandered. And it's being squandered because, as I say, policies have produced the wrong question and have produced the wrong answers. Result, I'm afraid that the rise of zombies that we've seen over the last decade will continue and it will intensify and I'm sorry for that okay uh, that's me done for the week uh, I hope that uh, you found this interesting or useful uh, if you did it would be really nice to, uh, to to know that thanks a lot bye